Welcome, folks. Welcome, Andrew, to a very special, very spooky episode of God vs. God. Yes. We are continuing a tradition of holiday-themed exhibition matches that stretches all the way back to uh, roughly 10 months ago. So yes, <laughs> picking right up where that left off. And many of you will recall that last year, just about a month or two after wrapping up our first season, Greco-Roman style, we recorded a surprise episode 15 holiday special pitting Saturn against Santa. And that was uh, yes. pretty well received. We even enjoyed by some of our less hardcore fans. Right. Uh, I believe you and I had a pretty good time doing it. So in the wake of just completing our follow-up season, talk like an Egyptian, we are delighted uh, to bring to our listeners once again, a new holiday special. This is a Halloween special, uh, which would make the 24th installment overall of this program. That is right. Full two dozen for you uh, keeping track at home. So holiday, in terms of a holiday in the United States, for those of us outside of the borders, Halloween is very, very popular here in the yeah. United States. It remains so. Uh, and I'd say for, for good reason. I mean, people, people love it. They love that you get to wear what you want. You don't have to buy gifts for others. <laughs> eat whatever you like. Uh, maybe the greatest gift of all. You don't have to see your extended family. So everybody wins. Uh, and there's a certain, there's a comfort, I think, in a routine to it. You know, we've got Halloween features, lots of like familiar characters that make annual appearances, which is, you know, Dracula, ghosts, what have you. Now, costume wise, you know, those classic figures, they have to mingle kind of every Halloween with some new entrants that will match the flavor of the preceding year. So this year, I'm sure you're going to get, I don't know, new kind of Barbie and Ken costumes. Yeah, you sure. Get, uh, Wednesday Adams, maybe sexy Ted Lasso of some kind. Uh, <laughs> But even as those trends are going to come and go, we know those iconic Halloween characters uh, are going to remain. So we thought for this episode, we would pay homage to two of them, put them through our patented God versus God process and just see who comes out on top and wins. And it wouldn't be the golden goat, not the golden ale. I'm guessing the <laughs> golden pumpkin. Yeah, golden pumpkin. Yeah, let's go with that. <laughs> right. Well, uh, unless you have anything to add, Andrew, before we dive in. Uh, no, yeah, it's so these are not gods. Uh, we we yes. acknowledge that. Uh, we're strength from the formula in that way. Uh, but some of the gods we covered were pretty monstrous in their behavior, so we're just cutting that out and just going straight for the monsters. Yeah, that's true. And there's certainly, I think, in both of these cases, we're going to go through uh, some certainly supernatural characteristics yeah. that may not rise to godlike level, but they have to be at least in the exhibition season part of the conversation. All right. So without ado, this is the God versus God Halloween special, which will be werewolves versus mummies. That's right. That's so, right. Uh, may the best uh, collective Halloween related entity <laughs> win. Right. Well, I'm going to start with with werewolves and the term werewolf um, goes way back. It originates, as we know it, from an old English term uh, that is pronounced. And I hope I'm getting this right. Werewolf. Slash. <laughs> Slightly different spelling. Uh, now, the translation of that term is very nuanced, but I will try to boil it down for you. Uh, it is man-wolf. So really, <laughs> lots of layers. Right. Uh, there is a term that our old friends, the ancient Greeks, uh, had for, for a werewolf. That is lycanthrope or lycanthropy. Uh, so we're going to hear a, a, a bit of that term a little bit later. But okay. in any case, whatever you call them, uh, as most of us are aware, a werewolf is an individual, I believe, typically a man, as far as I know, uh, who is able to shapeshift voluntarily or not into a wolf, or in some cases, especially in the movies, like a kind of hybrid man-wolf 
creature, right. but, but very wolf-like. Uh, this typically happens, of course, after the individual has been placed under some kind of curse or affliction. That's usually a bite from another werewolf, sometimes a scratch. Uh, but some sort of bad thing has happened to result in this lycanthropy. And, of course, that transformation happens typically on the night of a full moon. Now, right. I should point out, almost as a public service, uh, this year, the next full moon is actually on October 28th, which is the Saturday night prior to Halloween, which I don't know how this works over in, in Massachusetts, but here in Chicago, that's where the adult Halloween shenanigans really happened is that right. Saturday night. So this year, for all of us out there, keep an eye, keep a watchful eye out for any kind of casual werewolfery right. happening. Uh, bring your just, spray. That's right. More than, we'll bring. There'll be tools to bring, but you'll hear all about them in a minute. Okay. So... Of course, once a werewolf becomes a werewolf, um, they become incredibly dangerous to humans. They have the sharp teeth, the claws that can puncture the human skin, uh, and they don't hold back. They will typically attack anything that moves without any kind of self-control, without restraint. They are impulse-driven. They are uh, they tend to instinctively lash out with a bite or a swipe before asking questions, um, if they can even talk, which most <laughs> so. right. Uh, and they're also less vulnerable to injury because, of course, they heal very quickly. So it's, they're hard to bring them down. They've got this sort of superhuman speed and strength. They can land on their feet after a high fall and just kind of defined by these aggressive animalistic urges, which are already significant because they're usually men. But in the wolf form, <laughs> even intensified, greater right. sense of hunger, uh, sexual arousal, what have you. So most of what we know about werewolves comes from the Middle Ages. But given the nature of this program, I have to point out there are references to men changing into wolves that go way back to classical antiquity um, that even sort of overlap with, with our, our sweet spot here. So yep. we have a story uh, from Ovid in the Metamorphosis with King Lycan of Arcadia. Now, that's the guy whose name will end up giving us lycanthropy for reasons you'll see. Uh, Lycan is visited by none other than the god of gods himself, the hero of episode 12, Zeus. <laughs> Now, Zeus has to visit the king uh, disguised as a common man. Now, of course, listeners will recall from numerous stories in season one that when Zeus has to interact with mortals, he has to conceal his identity because his, his power is so great, he would just be too much to handle. So he comes disguised as a common man to visit King Lycan. But the king is uh, is dubious. He's not sure this, this, this guy who's just dropping by is really Zeus. Sure. Um, and I'm pretty confident Zeus doesn't, you know, carry ID. So he's, <laughs> he has to devise some kind of test just to see if this is really Zeus or not. So, um, in a bit of, of creative testing, he decides to kill his son, um, then cooks him for dinner and serves his son to Zeus in order to find out if you're really the all knowing Zeus, you'll be able to recognize the taste of human flesh. Well, Zeus is all-knowing and he is easily able to identify this human flesh and he's understandably quite disgusted at the hospitality he's received so uh he responds uh to this bad hospitality by transforming king laocon into a wolf which makes him kind of the first werewolf in history okay um now to his credit afterwards zeus is kind enough to then restore the king's son from you know, being dead and then being dinner to being back to normal. Uh, but Lycaon is not so lucky. Uh, he begins, as his name would suggest, a lifetime of lycanthropy. And he's, he's stuck as a wolf for the rest of his days. Yeah. Uh, now, interestingly, there's a later story. There's a bit of a trend here from the Greek geographer Pausanasius of a man named Demarcus of Paratia, who also happens to encounter the entrails of a sacrificed human child. And, you know, as one does back then, has a taste. Um <laughs> 
But DeMarcus is turned into a wolf for these actions. Now, unlike King Lacan before him, he is restored 10 years later. And get this, goes on to become not just a man again, but an Olympic champion. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, comeback story of the year. Yeah. I'm I'm sure nowadays if that happened, the, the anti-doping committee would be all over, you know, competing with performance enhancing wolf right. hormones or something. But back then, metal was all his. Uh, and Plenty the Elder tells us this kind of thing happened a lot pretty regularly back then. A man would be transformed into a wolf because of a human sacrifice and having a taste. But okay. if you're able to abstain from tasting human flesh in your werewolf state for nine or ten years, if you can last that long, you can come back to human form. But there's a catch. If you if you lose your self-control and you do have one more tasty morsel of human flesh, you will stay a wolf forever. So okay. a more regular thing than I would have expected back then right. in those uh, ancient days. But beyond the sort of more mythical age, we do – this is where lycanthropy starts getting more and more real. So you get up to, to Petronius, the first century AD, time of Nero. Virgil writes about a man who voluntarily – uses herbs and poisons to turn himself into a wolf. So it's sort of a self-appointed uh, werewolf, right. kind of an early uh, example of macro dosing, I guess you would call that. <laughs> um, inevitably, a little later, the early Christians uh, get involved, as they tend to do. Yeah. Uh, but none other than St. Augustine himself says, quoting, it is very generally believed that by certain witches' spells, men may be turned into wolves. Now, it caught on for a while. By the fourth century, there's so much of this talk that church finally has to say enough. They issue a formal doctrine on all things magic, witches, and transformations. Uh, spoiler alert, the Christians are against such things. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, right. So they actually have a doctrine that states, whoever believes that anything can be transformed into another species or likeness except by God himself is beyond doubt an infidel. Okay. So that's yeah. that's right there in writing. That should have closed the book. Should have settled things. Uh but over the, you know, there's something, there's a draw back to this, right. this this notion of a werewolf. So over the centuries, it really catches on in, in European folklore all over different parts of Europe. And to the point where by the Middle Ages, by the time that comes around, cultures feel the need to start creating laws to protect people from werewolves. So it becomes more of a legal matter. Uh, there's one medieval law code from uh, King Canute, unfortunately uh, spelled C-N-U-T. So just really <laughs> asking for a troublesome typo. <laughs> Uh, but that law ensured that the madly audacious werewolf do not too widely devastate nor bite too many of the spiritual flock. <laughs> so King too many. To say, yeah, I mean, if you're going to have werewolves, you know, but let's just make sure there aren't so many that it's going to affect church attendance. <laughs> <laughs> so as becomes their style, the Christians, you know, continue their their sort of retroactive interpretation of, of European folklore. It gets us to the early modern period where the sort of werewolf beliefs make their way, of course, here to the new world right. and the colonists. And I use the word beliefs uh, intentionally, Andrew, because by this time, uh, the notion of werewolves was not just stories. It was once again a Christian legitimate belief of, of concern where okay. uh, they felt the need to take it up a notch. So unsurprisingly, werewolves began to be uh, persecuted as an extension of the witch hunt phenomenon. So we're all uh, aware of that happening in, in, in right. your neck of the woods. Back then. But uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. I, it was news to me, werewolves were often part of those trials. Uh, and that happened back in Europe as well. So between the 15th and 18th centuries, a certain fraction of all the witch trials also includes yeah, accusations of lycanthropy. Now, there are adjacent charges within some of those. So to be fair, there are also people being accused of wolf riding 
and both <laughs> charming. So yeah. it's a bit of a broad legal category. So like still very much illegal. So if you see a wolf, you do not want to ride it. It's illegal. <laughs> yeah. Definitely don't try to charm it or they will get you for that. So uh, it sounds like legal minutiae, but these trials were they were a big deal. There a lot of public interest in them. And, and the prosecutions of werewolves began to peak in that period uh, with the case of, of one Peter Stump. It's S-T-U-M-P-P. Now, he was a, a German farmer and also serial killer uh, <laughs> who was accused of, of witchcraft and cannibalism and, on top of that, werewolfery. Now, it's a crazy story that could I have easily have its own episode, but uh, it was one of the most lurid and famous trials at that time. His own defense at the end for all of his crimes, Mr. Stump ended up saying, and I presume this was under oath, <laughs> He did it because he had intercourse with a succubus who was sent to him by the devil. Now that excuse, uh, well, certainly creative, uh, did not did not fly. He was ultimately fly, yeah. no, he was uh, ultimately executed and and ceremonially beheaded, which uh, both ended the trial. And I will observe, lends a certain irony to his being named Stump. It was really sort of <laughs> yeah. prophecy there. Uh, so a number of these witch trials all over Europe. The sordid characters in the headlines, like the werewolf of Chalon in France. You had Hans the werewolf in the Baltics. Uh, some cases in the Spanish Netherlands. It was really, it was a genre unto itself. Yeah. Um, now, and we know that our own colonial witch trials in the New World over here had kind of mixed results. You know, they right. weren't always successful. But turns out the people prosecuting werewolves back in the old country, those guys, they got results. A lot of yeah. executions. They got it done. <laughs> but there were cases where the prosecutors they could offer clear evidence of murder and even cannibalism, but they could not quite prove beyond a reasonable doubt association <laughs> with wolves. So they, they, uh, they would, you might, you might get a not guilty on the werewolfery, but the other charges they're, they're still going to stick. Inevitably it starts to kind of die down. It becomes treated as a mental condition. So it sure turns up in Diderot's encyclopedia in France, uh, which ultimately attributed <laughs> record reports of lycanthropy to a disorder of the brain. Okay. Except for one case, uh, very late in the era, 1853, northern Spain, a fellow named Manuel Blanco Roma Santa was condemned for a number of murders, but claimed to be not guilty because of his condition, his medical condition of lobishome. So he was essentially saying, I plead not guilty by reason of werewolf insanity. Yeah. Uh, did not work. Wow. Um, it ended up that he was still uh, charged with the murders of nine or ten people. Uh, there were three or four of his victims that were actually killed by actual wolves. He was trying to, you know, claim credit <laughs> for them. Again, very complicated case. Um, sure. But he was still uh, ultimately found guilty, uh, fined, and then executed. So, ah, yeah. <laughs> uh, they get the fine too. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so, you know, there are a few hundred years there. The, the European legal systems were clearly very busy. Uh, but once the trials kind of wound down in the early 18th century. That's when the werewolf starts to kind of assume this more lighthearted mantle of, you know, folklore studies, gothic right. horror, werewolf fiction, all the predecessors for the kind of horror uh, fantasy genre that we we know the figure today. So definitely a complicated history. But back to yeah. that folklore a little bit. So there's a lot of variety, it turns out, to how a werewolf presents himself. There's not just one way to be a werewolf. And it can be temporary or permanent, like the ancient Greeks had it, right. or somewhere in between, you know, nine, ten year window. Uh in some cases, the man becomes the wolf. I think we're kind of used to that. Yeah. In others, the wolf is actually a double who kind of goes and does his werewolf stuff while the man remains intact. Um, there's even a version where the werewolf is the actually the man's soul, leaves the body as werewolf. The man is left in a trance. 
So there's a very spiritual dimension to it. But in any case, there are some commonalities in terms of of physical state. So and one thing that never occurred to me, there are physical traits, even when a werewolf is not in werewolf form, even when you're a human, according to a lot of these cultures, you have certain physical traits. So you have a tell. There's a tell, a number of tells inside and out. So there's like the meeting of the eyebrows, the bridge of the nose. You got the curved fingernails. You got the sort of low set ears, the kind of swinging stride. Um, and people would would come up to you if they thought you might be a werewolf, and they would. It's like it seems very unfair. <laughs> they would cut into the flesh of the accused and peek within to see if there's any fur in there. <laughs> Again, yeah. just another example of science. Right. Uh, just yeah. trying to, yeah. Um, in werewolf form, usually in most traditions, the werewolf is indistinguishable from the other wolves. Although sometimes they're a little larger. Uh, sometimes they keep their human eyes, so they're a little extra soulful. Um, occasionally they even have a voice and can talk, but most of the time they can't. Now, once you return back from being a werewolf, that's a rough transition. Turning from a werewolf back to regular man, you come back kind of weak, you know, debilitated, nervous depression. You're in a state. So that transition is tricky. There's also a number of of rituals involved when you, in in the act of becoming a werewolf, um, which again, will vary by culture. So typically you take off your clothing. Um, Perhaps you put on a belt of wolf skin, Right. Uh, to get get in the mood, I guess I never <laughs> quite explained that one. Uh, it was typical to uh, to urinate in a circle around your clothes, sort of an extra protective security perimeter, I guess. Uh, sometimes you'd rub the body with like a magic salve. Uh, you would drink rainwater out of the footprint of a real wolf. <laughs> in the Swedish tradition, uh, there's a special beer involved, which is nice. Right. In uh, parts of Italy, France, and Germany, back in the day, you would sleep outside on a summer night with the full moon on your face, but only if it's Wednesday or Friday. So it's like, no weekend lycanthropy, people. We, we have rules. <laughs> uh, so you got to time your full moon properly. Right. But I, I, I feel like I have to, to, to issue a reminder here. As enjoyable as many of these activities sound, you know, going a little au natural in the moonlight, a little outdoor urination, a little magic beer. Being a werewolf is not fun in games. It is most of the, is most of the time considered a divine curse. And in mm. a slight contradiction to some of the early uh, Christian churches, uh, there was a period where Christian saints were able to apply this curse and make people into werewolves, which had to go against the letter of the law. Yeah. But again, none other than St. Thomas Aquinas said, all angels, good and bad, have the power of transmutating our bodies uh, to the point where St. Patrick the patron saint of, of my ancestral homeland yeah. uh, was known to have transformed a Welsh king into a wolf. And that's just history. There's no yeah. argument. So <laughs> yeah, I, it's in the, it's in the I books. did not know that, but yeah. You hear stories about St. Patrick. That one rarely comes up. Yeah. The Welsh are certainly, certainly not talking about it. <laughs> so what do you do when you do encounter a werewolf? What's the remedy? Well, right. In the case of the Greeks and the Romans, it was just exhaustion. They would just wait for him to tire out. So, like, it was kind of like a ancient rope-a-dope strategy. You know, the night <laughs> of the full moon ends, you just keep your distance, you outlast him, and then he eventually turns back. Um, but as you can imagine, there were also lots of other attempts to to cure the werewolf entirely from being a werewolf now and forever. Because, you know, right. to break the cycle. Um, in medieval times, there were, there were, of course, medicinal treatments. There was an herb that they would give uh, werewolves uh, called fittingly uh, wolf's bane. Some would resort to surgery or exorcism, or in some cases, a, a bit of both. Right. Um, the Sicilians, I appreciate this, they would strike a werewolf on the forehead with a knife. 
somewhat more aggressively, they could also pierce the werewolf's hands with nails. And you try that one, it better work. Otherwise, <laughs> you're, just, you're definitely going to make the werewolf angry. Yeah. Um, and there's a big range of these. The German lowlands, you could cure a werewolf by simply addressing him three times by his Christian name. So, <laughs> Sort of you like got to guess. You got to know. You got to know. Um, yeah, like the reverse uh, Candyman. He's like, you know, <laughs> Andrew, Andrew, Andrew. And you snap right. back. Like, oh, man, was I was I doing it again? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. You're back. Um, I think my favorite, though, the Danish. Um, they believed that merely scolding a werewolf would kill it. Uh, <laughs> which, again, it's something typical for, for, you know, what is routinely the happiest country on earth. Just just give the fellow a good talking to. That'll, that'll do it. We get it. You're extra hairy at the moment. You've you've been a little violent. We've all just had about enough. So why don't you go ahead and fix that? <laughs> but probably, and again, unsurprisingly, the best known cure over all these uh, these centuries for lycanthropy, naturally conversion to Christianity. So no. all that werewolf needed the whole time was just a little bit of Jesus, and he's just fine. <laughs> that works every time. Yeah. Uh, probably a tricky conversion process, I would think, but they worked it out. Yeah. Um. Now, usually when you kill or incapacitate the werewolf, then he kind of turns back into a man. But it's worth noting in some cultures, there's also a werewolf that has a kind of a zombie element. So in particular in wartime, if a werewolf is killed, but the werewolf's corpse is not destroyed, it then comes back as like this revenant undead wolf that prowls the battlefield and drinks the blood of dying soldiers. Like, who makes this stuff up? <laughs> very detailed. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in, this has got to be true. I, that's right. In uh, parts of Germany, Poland, northern France, if you die in a state of mortal sin, which you don't want to do, uh, you could come back as a blood-drinking wolf and then return to your human corpse at daylight. So you have like a little, little transitional <laughs> period. All right. Um, but even when you come back, then the parish priest has to come out, has to decapitate the corpse with a spade, <laughs> has to do an exorcism, has to throw the head into a stream. There's a lot of steps, and I'm yeah. sure there's some kind of special outfit. Um, but it, it, it ends up being very similar to the disposal of a vampire, so right. much so that in Eastern Europe, and I didn't know this, their folklore had like this hybrid version that was both vampire and werewolf that had the Serbian name Vulkodlak. So as if either of those isn't scary enough, they combine the two into right. one spooky being so you know all that said the version we know in america in in kind of the werewolf fiction much more familiar uh and while that werewolf is resistant to most injuries it is of course vulnerable to one thing and that is typically the silver weapon um yes. now the classic silver bullet right eventually came around in the 20th century but there's lots of lots of folklore that that you know, established that the werewolf was, was not a yeah. yeah they would they would gather all the silver in town that was it was pre-bullet it was silver <laughs> was still the thing yeah um and of course, lots of werewolves in movies and television. We'll, we'll save that for the iconography category uh, in sure. depth. Um, but just to point out, as, as as sort of the arc of the character, the, the, in the movies they've become not just scary, but ultimately like a little bit of sympathetic. Like they become kind of like, as I said, victims to a curse. You know, they are suddenly they're victims. They're trapped. They're unable to escape. All the way to their involvement in the Twilight series, in which case <laughs> the audience uh, felt, I'm sure, much the same way. Yeah. Uh, so. Little postscript. I, I do have to point out the instances of actual wolves attacking humans is very low. Okay. Now, this was surprising to me. I felt that wolves needed a, a voice in their corner. Uh, so they did a study on between 2002 and 2020. Researchers found 
26 fatal attacks throughout the world over the course of almost 20 years, with 14 of those just due to catching rabies. And there's quite a few in Iran, for instance. I couldn't get an explanation on that, <laughs> but that's it's, it's <laughs> wolf, wolf heavy there. Right. So the risks are above zero, but they're far too low to calculate. So I feel like, again, it's a public service message with all the scary stuff that we know werewolves do. Don't take it out on actual wolves. Those guys, they're they're okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and 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 I think that's you know that's the key to the question of why we've been interested in wolves all these years, and the werewolf has been kind of a stand-in for that, because um, you know they are wild, they're majestic, but they represent kind of parts of us that we would prefer to suppress. You know, the sort of the pack mentality, the ferocious niche, the protectivity, um, and I think they remind us of that kind of primitive existence that many of us sort of miss from time to time. You know, they get to fall asleep under the moonlight. They get to pee in a circle if they want. Whatever they want, they can do it. Uh, right. and, and sometimes you miss that. So the werewolf becomes, I think, this sort of way of reconciling these two parts of ourselves. It's it's on one side, the wild side that maybe we've lost and miss, and the other more civilized side that sometimes can feel too constrained. So we, we, we tell ourselves these stories to try to reconcile those two. So even though he's a familiar and even amusing member of our traditional Halloween cast of characters, uh, clearly the werewolf uh, and the werewolves have a long, dark, often horrific backstory. <laughs> and <laughs> they do. Whether you uh, view them in any of their forms as aged cannibals, medieval scientific oddities, famous defendants in witch trials, or alternating corpses and blood-drinking zombie wolves, uh, <laughs> they offer, I think, something for everyone. So uh should be an interesting contestant, uh, yeah. given all of that backstory. Uh, and there you have it. There are your werewolves. Awesome. I, there's a lot of stuff I did I did not know. And... and uh... I think it's going to make for an interesting battle. Yes, it is a long and and horrific, <laughs> but interesting story. Yes. Very good. Well, uh, I will I will uh, take a sip of my festive uh, holiday uh, Halloween cider here and uh, take a breather, and we will come back with the mummies. All right, right after this. All right, so now we're going to go into the mummies, and I think I. I thought I would start off with you know the definition uh, of a mummy to see you know what we're talking about here. So uh, the definition I got online was that a mummy is I quote especially in ancient Egypt a body of a human or an animal that has been ceremonially preserved by removal of the internal organs and treatment with resin and wrapping in bandages. Yeah. So so a bit gross but not necessarily monstrous really. No. Uh, but this is a Halloween special, damn it. So uh, we're going to talk about the monster version. <laughs> That's right. All right. So, so Monster Wiki, uh, which is a thing, apparently. Uh, now you tell me. Defines mummies as undead creatures seeking revenge against those who defiled their tombs. Mm. All right. So, and then regular Wiki also has uh, an entry on mummies, and they define mummies as, again, Undead creatures wrapped in bandages, similar to undead creatures such as zombies <laughs> or skeletons. So, in the monster family, they're in the same family as zombies or skeletons who yeah. have been revived uh, corpses. Yes. Uh, but perhaps unsurprisingly, our, our diligent friends at Wikipedia are not one hundred percent right. What? In that in that description. Oh. Uh, so. In that we see at least there are a number of other mummy types uh, 
around and we're going to talk about all those different types mm. that that is one that what they describe describe is probably the prototypical type but there's a lot uh a lot of other ones um and just a, a second on on the etymology of mummy uh that comes originally from the persian word mum uh meaning wax and that refers back to that resin sure uh, in the definition uh there's part of preservation uh, process and that feeds through Arabic into mummia and then uh, modern uh, French and English mummy. So pretty recognizable, pretty straightforward there. Uh, but in terms of the, you know, origins of mummification and mummies, uh, you know, we really, again, have to go back uh, into mythology and the mytho mythological origins of mummification, are, of course, are something uh, we actually covered in season two. Yes. Uh, Talk like an Egyptian. Uh, and that, of course, began with the unjust and brutal double murder of the god pharaoh Osiris yes. uh, by his brother, uh, the god of chaos, Set. Yes. Uh, so after Osiris's second murder and uh, then subsequent dismemberment for the sole purpose of preventing him from coming back, uh, he is... Again, reconstructed. Yes. Uh, but because of the dismemberment, he needs a new, more structurally supportive outfit uh, than he was wearing before. That's right. And hence, the mummy look is born as he is bandaged up just to kind of hold him together. Now, Osiris was a god, of course. Uh, so it's hard to say whether he was really could be considered undead hmm. or just in something of a diminished state of immortality. But but I do think it, it is a bit bit of a tell that. Everyone seemed to agree that, you know, it, it's probably better, Osiris, if you're not Pharaoh anymore. Uh, and, <laughs> it's certainly incapacitated by the stretch, and, yeah. And maybe if you just retired down to the underworld, <laughs> that would be for the best for everybody. Yes. So, yes, sir. Uh, so a bit of a tell there. But, um, but importantly, uh, for the ancient Egyptians, this did open up. Uh, the path to an afterlife, uh, at least for the well-heeled Egyptians. That's right. Uh, and the process of mummification uh, became an important part of getting that chance uh, to cheat the finality of death. So being mummified was a big part of this. Uh, for Egyptians, the soul uh, was split into two parts. You have the ba and the ka. Okay? Mm. So two parts of your soul. Now the ka... Uh, crucially, has to stay with the body, and that is what kind of animates uh, your body, while the ba is the part that can float around, mm -hmm. uh, but it does have to return uh, to the body every night. So if your body happened to be buried uh, in a shallow grave and dug up and devoured by jackals... Yes, uh, which, <laughs> not which uncommon. Was, yeah, which was a common occurrence. Well, right. you know, in that case, your, your ba is going to have a hard time finding uh, the body, uh, when it comes back right and, and your cause probably not going to be in great shape either no so um this undead state of the mummified corpse you know is important uh because they it has to stay in this state until you can reach uh the afterlife hmm. so uh and again this undead state um is made more explicit and they had what we call the opening of the mouth ceremony so right before they put the mummified corpse into the tomb, like the last second before they closed the boulder over, a priest would come up wearing an Anubis mask and 
ritualistically open the mummy's mouth using a ceremonial knife, and that's going to allow the mummy to hear, to speak, to see, and eat in the afterlife. And then immediately they just close up the tomb and, and <laughs> <Good luck laughs> in there. hope for the best. <laughs> they, you, you can't come out, but good luck in there. <laughs> Uh, so, so for deceased Egyptians, uh, you know, like I said, their body needs to last in this undead state long enough for the soul to reach judgment uh, by that jackal-headed god Anubis, and either be uh, devoured by Amet or or find its way to paradise, uh, which they call the field field of reeds. So, um, it's it's pretty important that that the mummy have this sort of undead state at least until the soul can reach its goal. Um, but in addition, you, know, you talked about curses, uh, in this case, the mummies are the ones, uh, leaving the curses. So in some cases we do find curses left on tomb walls to ward off grave robbers. And this gets to that second part of the definition, uh, about them seeking retribution, uh, for people defiling, uh, their corpse. So tomb of a man named Kentika, uh, this curse was left on the side of the tomb and it says as for all men who shall enter this my tomb who are impure there will be judgment an end shall be made of him i shall seize his neck like a bird i shall cast the fear of myself into him <laughs> wow. so, so pretty pretty direct yeah. Yeah. curse by by Kentika, uh that should you mess with with uh, my tomb, I'm, I'm going to come back and I'm going to get you. No words uh, to mince there. Very, very explicit. Yes. Uh, so uh, there's later, curse. they weren't always so directly uh, threatening physical violence. Uh, some more magical uh, mm. curses. But uh, this one uh, on a pharaoh tomb wall says, Cursed be those who disturb the rest of a pharaoh. They that shall break the seal of this tomb shall meet death by a disease that no doctor can diagnose no. so not only will you die but but they, they won't be able to diagnose the the, the disease <laughs> extra bad I, yeah. yeah which is just that little twist of the knife <laughs> uh so then uh, a modern egyptian egyptologist uh records this curse from from giza that he encountered uh on on the tomb wall and it says all people who enter this tomb who make evil against this tomb and destroy it. May the crocodile be against him in water and snakes against him on land. May the hippopotamus be against him in water and the scorpion on land. So in this case, uh, that he, they're outsourcing uh, the vengeance uh, to those animals, but they are uh, suggesting that they have that power. So, Although I suggest that those animals are going to be kind of against you, whether you have a curse or not. In yes. Land. Yeah. Yeah. Those animals that do kind of take a bit of a thrash you first and, and, yes. and find out about your tomb robbery later. <laughs> exactly. Sure. So uh, just in case you, you were thinking about robbing a tomb, I'm going to sting you. Uh, true. Uh, you know, but interesting, we, we don't get a lot of stories about mummies coming to life in ancient Egypt. Hmm. Uh, about them walking around. We have tales of ghosts who, who return and, and have uh, some revenge. Um, there's one surviving tale of a restless ghost in ancient Egypt uh, where the priest of a moon has to build a new coffin 
and bury it to appease this restless spirit whose tomb was destroyed. So their tomb is destroyed, but it's their spirit that's walking around, not not the body. Uh, and then there's another inscription by a widower uh, on, on his wife's tomb, uh, apparently written after she, she had already been deceased, I, I believe. And, is, and he complained that he is being unfairly haunted by his deceased wife, hmm. uh, claiming to, in fact, that he had been a model husband in her life, despite whatever memories uh, the spirit may have. He always puts his toilet seat down. You know, <laughs> He did his di- share the dishes. He swears, <laughs> not fair. It seems like a little dirty pool there to get the last word, but yes. all right. yeah, that, uh, a little bit, yeah. Uh, so, so well, I didn't find you know these corporeal mummies wandering around wrecking havoc, uh, yeah. But I think in some ways that did stand to reason because, uh, you know, having an intact mummy greatly increased your chance of getting to the field of reeds, and then you also you have Osiris. You have Anubis, and you have uh, ultimately Amit, the devourer of the dead. You know to keep the spirits, keep those corpses in check. Right. You know while the while the Egyptian pantheon still still working, uh, but that all changes about in the four nineties uh, CE after polytheism is banned in the Roman Empire in, in favor of Christianity. And the Egyptian gods go, you know, wherever it is that gods go when they're uh, not being invoked. Right. Uh, so, you know, and there's not an immediate undead mummy surge in the Roman Christian era. But uh, in 1641, after uh, the Arab Muslims conquer Egypt from, uh, from the Byzantine Empire, uh, we do start to encounter ghouls. Now, uh, ghouls, uh, interestingly, comes from uh, the Arabic word ghoul, meaning to grab. So ghouls are undead creatures that hang about in cemeteries and grab and devour unlucky passersby. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, I would interpret this, or this could be interpreted as the first sign of the rise of mummies after the Egyptian pantheon is not, you know, keeping an eye on things. But yeah, that, the ghouls know. are kind of like your first, uh, your, 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 yeah, your, your, your pre-season mummy. games. Yeah, proto, there you go. Yeah. Yeah, it's your, your proto mummy. So, you know, that's a little bit of speculation, but, you know, I will say that in general, people in the Middle Ages knew enough to keep, to leave a mummified corpse alone. <laughs> you know, there, there, was, there was some tomb robbery, don't, you know, don't get me wrong, but, sure. but lighter on the corpse uh, desecration. Yes. That, however, changes uh, once uh, the Europeans conquer Egypt, uh, starting with Napoleon's conquest and then loss of Egypt in the early 1800s. So, you know, on the plus side of that, we we got the Rosetta Stone uh, stone discovered and able to once again uh, read hieroglyphics after 1400 years or so of that knowledge being lost. And then we are also able to rediscover uh, ancient Egyptian myth, but also these curses uh, saying, you know, please do not desecrate the mummies. Oh, yeah. We just didn't know what they said before. (laughs) But despite this, uh, mummy desecration actually becomes something of a fashion Hmm. in London and New York, where people (laughs) in the Victorian age have what they call mummy unwrapping parties. What? (laughs) They would... Bring mummies over from 
from Egypt to invite your friends over and then you open up the t open up the sarcophagus and then start peeling away uh, the wrapping just to see, no way. <laughs> to see what's inside. <laughs> Uh, I, I I find it hard to believe that, that people in Europe would take classical antiquities, illegally remove them for their own pleasure. That I've never heard a precedent of that. That is well, shocking. Well, in in addition, uh, for a time, mummies were also ground up to make medications, uh, inclu <laughs> <laughs> including aphrodisiacs. Oh I mean. I guess there might have been something in the resin, but I don't know. The science appears rather yeah, dubious. Well, there. I mean, it did it did work for Osiris, I guess. That's <laughs> true. That's true. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, no question. Maybe, maybe that was it. Um, wow. You know, so so unsurprisingly, perhaps this era of mummy mania and despoilment also starts to get us reports of undead mummies walking among us, hmm. and this is where really uh, we start to get it. So. Um, Mummy lore starts to identify actually a couple different types of the revenant mummy. Um, and I'll kind of identify what I identified as the main axis of variation is one, the physical state of the returning mummy. And then the other one is the motivation for the mummy's return to life. So okay. uh, we're going to get mummies who, uh, believe it or not, were, were considered to be, you know, very much. Uh, conventionally physically attractive or even hot okay so there's the hot mummy and then that, and then of course uh, hard to picture but okay yeah yeah uh, then then of course uh there were the, the mummies that were you know very very much not uh, which is the more typical <laughs> yes. uh, at all um and then on the motivation side we get uh usually kind of some mix of either an eternal true love and or blind revenge, mm. uh, you know. So, and even though you know most depictions uh, now uh, in the really recent times ha have had mummies as males, uh, especially in the nineteenth century, that was not always the case. It, it was more uh, of a, a male or female could 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 be either. Okay. Uh, so first thing I talk about kind of what the the love mummy tradition. Uh, mummies who are, who are brought brought back to to reclaim a lost love mm -hmm. or avenge their lost love. So, yeah. and those again can be uh, either male or female. Uh, however, they, these are the ones that tend to be in better physical condition, uh, plain hotter, which which is which is fortunate because that's probably <laughs> going to give you a little bit better chance. Yes, uh, at rec reclaiming that lost uh, lost love. So. The revenge mummy, on the other hand, is awoken from eternity, perhaps dragged out of paradise, the field of reeves, uh, and they're not happy about it. Uh, and those do tend to be uh, male mummies for, for the most part. Uh, so we start to get these reports in 1827, 1840. There are stories uh, written about them. Uh, but one of the early ones that I thought was interesting was uh, in the canon of mummy lore, was written by Louisa May Alcott, hmm. uh, who, who you may remember as uh, more famously as the author of Little Wo Women. Yes, but but she had uh, an early mummy adjacent tale uh, that leaned uh, more into the the curse that, than a reanimated corpse side. Uh, but there was a, a mummy involved, um, 
another famous uh, author who who really added to mummy lore was Bram Stoker, who again yes. more famous for writing about uh, vampires. Yes, uh, but he also wrote about mummies in, in a book called The Jewel of the Seven Stars. Uh, in that story, uh, a mummy uh, of an Egyptian sorceress uh, is discovered by two English Egyptologists. Uh, you know, and they, of course, just take everything out, but immediately uh, strange bad things start to happen to them. Uh, so at first the mummy and the tomb objects uh, are stolen uh, from our Egyptologists, who are, of course, the rightful thieves. Uh, right. But the, the second thieves are, end up dead and, and are rediscovered by the Egyptologists, but just after the Egyptologists uh, recover the artifacts uh they go into a three-day trance and the lead uh archaeologist's wife goes into labor uh is pregnant obviously and and the, uh, she she dies in labor uh-huh and then the story fast forward 16 years we don't really you know somehow they get out of egypt we don't really know hmm. uh but the lead egyptologist has apparently been trying actually to revive the mummy Hmm. in a secret chamber in his basement for the last 16 years. Wow. Uh, and this is only discovered after he goes into a coma for a few days and then wakes up with a new vision of, of how to bring the dead sorceress uh, back to life. And it's a, it's a complicated method that he has, but it involves freeing her spirit from a cat mummy where he is, hmm. he's determined that her spirit has been trapped and putting it into her own mummy uh, using his... 16 now 16 year old daughter as the medium and this works uh despite the egyptologist being completely wrong about the cat mummy having <laughs> anything to do with this eh, you win some you lose some that's science yeah, <laughs> yeah. but his daughter was actually possessed uh by the sorceress uh and the mummy is brought back with the unfortunate side effect uh that she kills everyone in involved in this except for the narrator who's relating this story to us and yeah. then escapes into the english night <laughs> so uh you know never to be seen again uh then we have the unseen man story uh we get a love mummy there and in that one a french egyptologist is drawn by his dreams to explore the ancient city of thebes uh so i'll give you the story synopsis on that one um so once once he's there uh, he discovers the previously unviolated tomb of Queen Amunhat. Throughout the tomb's halls and chambers, he encounters reanimated mummies, which stalk him, intent on killing him. When the mummies succeed in capturing him and dragging him before the queen, they serve. They prepare him for sacrifice. We readers learn that his aptitude for Egyptology and ancient languages are due to him being a reincarnation of a moonhead's lover and is he is being called to account for misdeeds against the queen in his previous life mm. and it ends with a literary question can love save the frenchman from death <laughs> so he's got to plead his case that whatever he did uh, three thousand years ago is not there's there's some sort of statute of limitations on that yeah that's you'd hope it would expire by then but maybe not <laughs> if you're if you're a frenchman i guess <laughs> yeah yeah uh so th then another famous vampire writer much later uh, contributes to the, the love mummy uh, idea. 
and this is Anne Rice, uh, who has yeah. a story called The Mummy Ramses the Damned. And in this one, there is a super intelligent regenerated mummy of the conventionally attractive sort who saves a young woman uh, from some sort of murder plot uh, and ends up using her uh, to help him revive his lost love, Cleopatra. Oh, wow. But unfortunately, because Cleopatra has been fed the potion after 2,000 years after her death, there's, there's been some brain rot. Oh, uh, and so it uh, doesn't work quite as planned, and she comes back as a homicidal maniac bent on revenge against Ramses because she blames him for not saving Mark Antony uh, back, back in the day. That's what you get for messing with the past, man. Yeah, yeah, and that, that there's a whole series series of, uh, of those uh, back and forth with uh, Cleopatra versus, versus Ramsey. So, <laughs> uh, now in the classic modern uh, canon comes uh, probably from the 1932 movie The Mummy, uh, starring Boris Kor- uh, Karloff. Yes, as the eponymous mummy. Uh, so Karloff's mummy again was a magician. Uh, in in his past life, uh, buried alive in a state of suspended animation for the crime of trying to resurrect his girlfriend. Uh, so he is freed uh, by some Egyptologists in 1921, uh, bumbling around. Uh, but he just goes and integrates back into modern Egyptian life for like 10 years, hmm. just you know, living his life, hanging out in, in Cairo, <laughs> until he meets a woman who he believes is the reincarnation of his long dead girlfriend so uh he comes up with the the, the brilliant plan that he, he's gonna kill her uh so he can mummify her and resurrect uh her his girlfriend's soul into her body okay uh but in the end this plot is 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 foiled uh the woman saves herself when she realizes yes she actually is a reincarnation of that girlfriend uh and she remembers you know i could just pray to isis to burn the scroll of thoth which is what is keeping uh, this mummy alive, uh, which Isis does through her statue. So wait, that happens in the movie? Yes. <laughs> wow, that was not a twist I saw coming in the movie from the '30s. <laughs> no, no, they they were all in on the lore. So nice. Uh, now the you know kind of so these have mostly been mummies who who are on on the the more intact side. Um, right. Arthur Conan Doyle. Uh, author of the Sherlock Holmes series, of course, uh, is also one of the first and most influential writers on kind of the revenge mummy. Mm. Uh, in this case, his was uh, a dangerous, mindless version of the mummy. Um, and that was told in the story lot number 249. And in there, the mummy is a, a mute tool of an unscrupulous Egyptologist mm. who has been brought back to life uh, to serve as a hench mummy uh, for the Egyptologist. Who knew uh, Egyptologists had so much of a dark side? <laughs> they really do. <laughs> they, they, they must be stopped. It's, yeah, it's, really the, it's really what I've come to in this. Um, so then we have Harry Houdini wrote a first-person account of one of his mummy encounters, and in that case, it was, probably enough, a narrow escape from the clutches of an army of mummies Led by a mummy pharaoh in an underground cavern, um, you know. But probably no work did more to cement the pop popular image of mummies as, as being fully wrapped and, and uh, 
less than articulate uh, as the Mummy series starring Lon Chaney uh, as the Mummy Karis. Uh, these were in the 1940s, and Karis was a mummy who had his tongue cut out as part of his original death sentence, where he has been uh, both killed and then reanimated as the guard of his beloved princess's tomb mm. for 3,000 years. And then when, again, our Egyptologists come in to find her tomb, uh, Karis is employed by uh, some Egyptian priests who are just hanging around uh, to exact revenge uh, on these Egyptologists. Uh, but later installments of these movies, Karis has been brought back um, and he goes on a rampage first in Massachusetts and then later Louisiana, uh, continuing his anti-Egyptologist murder spree. Uh, <laughs> You know, at his own deliberate groaning mute pace. So, further uh, proof you know, that if there's one place that's not fit for a bunch of scientists, it's Massachusetts. <laughs> that, that, that is, uh, you know, so so popular culture tends to focus on the mummies closer to that uh, lot two forty nine and uh, Lon Chaney uh, mode of you know maybe subnormal intelligence uh, is it, it still recognizable form. Uh, you know, still slightly shambling, wrapped figures. Uh, sometimes without the power to speak, but, you know, wrapping up, I would say, you know, whether attractive or atrocious, whether they have the gift of gab or the gift of grab, uh, <laughs> mummies do tend to be, uh, killers, but, uh, as we've seen, they usually do have their reasons and those reasons are usually down to Egyptologists. Wow. That is, that is again, many, many levels of understanding beyond what I had. <laughs> Yeah, I, it's hard not to picture there. There are some good commonalities between the two subjects uh, beyond even just the mythological origins, but also this sense that there's that they have a reason behind what they're doing. You know, yes. there was something other than you know external from them, like something right. bad had to happen from somebody else to make them do this. You made me do this, Egyptologists right. or jilted lover, whoever the other option is. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. There's right. there's, a, there's a moral dimension to this that I was not anticipating beyond yeah. the. Uh, the fun and spooky games. Well, I think we got a match. I think we got a seriously. Match. Oh, this is this is going to be it's going to be a doozy. Well, let's uh let's let's gear up for that. And uh, after this quick breather, we will come back in for our five categories to see uh, whether the werewolves or the mummies uh, win our exhibition match. Right after All right. this. All right, we are back for our category rounds. And uh, we have five categories we're going to face off here. And as always, we will start with Immortal Combat, which is, once again, you know, the schoolyard uh, decision of who would win? Who would win? Uh, so I'm going to start off, uh, you know, give kind of what the mummy brings to the table and we can yeah. figure out uh, who's going to win on this one. So again, I think the problems with mummies here for this category is there's a big range of both, you know, powers and intelligence. So, you know, I think we kind of have to go with kind of the median, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. When we, not the most powerful, you know, on one side, we have the mummy Imhotep in the 1999 hit film, the mummy. And he had the ability to su summon an army of scarab beetles and a sandstorm. Sure. 
and he had his own kind of mummy minion army, uh, mm-hmm. which they sometimes do. And then on the other side, we've got um, the mummy in Conan Doyle's uh, Lot 249 mummy, who was kept uh, by his master in a coffin and, and only mindlessly uh, carried out the murders. So, you know, uh, even, even though in that case, I believe he did have some sort of super strength and some sort mm-hmm. of invulnerability. Uh, but, you know, possession seems to be a fairly common uh, mummy ability, mm-hmm. uh, the ability to hypnotize people, uh, especially in their dreams, uh, to do what they want. Um, saw that in Stoker's mummy. Um, you know, an alpha mummy can have the ability to, to raise and command the bodies of, of the deceased around them yeah, uh, in cases. Yeah. Um, you know. It, it, in some cases, they have a talent for for learning new languages and just you know disappearing into into a crowd, <laughs> uh, getting a job at the museum. Um, so you know we have a fully loaded mummy of magician or a sorceress, and they're going to be very formidable. Right. Um, if that if it's a mummy uh, schlub who, who was raised by someone else, less so. But you know I think the median mummy is is going to have some super strength. They're going to be hard to kill. Uh, you know, maybe have a little bit of hypnosis or, or dream influence, mm. kind of median. Uh, but you know, that, that's about it. There also there's some vulnerability. Uh, we saw that sometimes their power to be reanimated is tied to a certain other object, and if you can figure out what that object is, yeah, and destroy it, uh, you can actually destroy the mummy. Which you would assume word is out on that. As as a sort of Wolfman opponent would have read up on the literature before this, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a, uh, interesting. Well, you know, just as there is a wide range of kind of levels of ability in in mummies, uh, somewhat conversely, there's a wide range of traditions for the werewolf. But when in werewolf state, they actually are relatively consistent. Okay, so they seem to be, you know, with 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 a little bit happening on the margins. But once they're, you know, they get there in different ways. They're there for different reasons and different durations. But once they're there, you know, they have the teeth and they have the claws and the sort of superhuman strength. And they are they have the willingness to fight, which we've talked about many times as an important factor in this category, especially if they're threatened or hungry, which for a werewolf is virtually all the time. Um, The reason I bring up the the review of literature is clearly at this point, the word is out that if the werewolf, if a werewolf is your opponent, you have a silver bullet, you'll be fine. Right. But even, even, you know, lacking that, if you hit one on the head with a knife, you know, say his real name three times, give him a good Danish scolding, <laughs> uh, you might be able to win that fight. And if you right. if you do that, you're left with a sort of a tired, depressed man <laughs> who is very easy pickings for a fight. Right. Uh, so there are techniques available, but when in that werewolf state, they are pretty fierce creatures. So it's tricky. I guess I come back to... The mummy might have an advantage because of those sort of supernatural, uh, almost possession type faculties where I feel like a werewolf because of its vulnerability would be especially vulnerable to that. Physically, Mm. they're, they're very strong, but I feel like they're, they're in a bit of a state, right? They're, they're not at their (laughs) best. Uh, that could be a really good counter weapon. Um, on the other hand though, you did mention, I think most of these mummies are fairly, uh, they move around in a fairly kind of slow shambly kind of way, right? Yes, yeah. There's, there's not any. They, they're very deliberate movements in, in, in all the. So you don't have like literature. a fast mummy, <laughs> no. But deliberate. No. And the reason I bring that up is because clearly, in a lot of, a lot of successful defeating of the werewolf, you just wait them out. 
Right. And mummies, if nothing else, have proven to be very patient. <laughs> Given the that time damn. horizons of those stories, they they have the time. They're, they're going to play the long game. Uh, but to do that, you really have to kind of evade. And and with right. those slow, deliberate motions, maybe not. It's a very, it's a very close one. Uh, yeah. It's interesting. I, I think you know, if the environment, you know, if the mummy has full access to its tomb goods, it's going to have some silver with it. Yeah, yeah. But it's so, if those rascally Egyptologists have taken it all. <laughs> once, once again, it's the scientists who get you into trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Who knew? Well, I think uh, I think I will give. I'm going to give the mummies the edge on this one. It's a it's a it's a very slim margin. But I think yeah. given given that sort of supernatural psychological component, I think that's the uh, that's what puts them over the edge. Yeah, I think I, I think I think I'll join you in that one. I think I think it, it is it is close, uh, you know. It could kind of go a couple different ways, but I think yeah. more cases, uh, the mummy's going to probably be able to to to, to get them. So, yeah. All right. Okay. And that brings us to curriculum deity. Uh, you know, and that is, you know, who would you rather be, which is yeah. int- really interesting for this one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then uh, I think we decided, who would you rather dress up as? Yes, uh, we did. <laughs> we're, we're updating the category a little bit. We won't yeah, be normally worshiping. that would be worship. I, I don't know if that's going to apply to either of these. No. Either no. of these figures. Uh, so, uh, Matt, why don't you start us off on this one? Yeah, I mean, in terms of of, of who to be, uh, it's not great for the werewolf. You know, I think you've got this sense of curse. Uh, you have a lot out of your control. You have these kind of primeval urges that are overtaking you for at least portions of your life. I suppose on the plus side, you know, you have a certain sense of independence. You get to <laughs> get to get tap into that kind of primordial self. That's yeah. Dismiss. Get out in nature. Yeah. You get some fresh air. Get some, uh, you know, I haven't gotten to movies yet. I guess maybe if you're Teen Wolf, you know, you get to become a high school basketball star. We get popularity. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to him in a little bit. Right. Uh, I do feel like on a practical level, the whole full moon thing for a werewolf would be really inconvenient for scheduling because you're really like, oh, man, it's a really good concert coming up or there's this game I want to attend. That's a full moon that night. I'm going to be <laughs> worthless. I can't I can't make it to that. Uh I think they're, you know, in the grand scheme of things, the the werewolf is mostly just absorbed in the sense of curse. They've got very high legal exposure, <laughs> uh, depending on which legal system you're involved in. Yeah, yeah. And lots of people trying to kill you, or at the very worst, you know, call your names, uh, hit you in the head with a knife. You know, <laughs> just a lot of people after you. So, yeah, uh, not a great, not a great case for wanting to be um, a, a a member of the Wolfman tribe or the the, the werewolves. Um, in terms of dressing up. And again, we're going to the practical level here. Uh, the, the the head and the fur sound pretty hot, and you know I, I get a little warm in the in, in at, a, at a Halloween party. So yeah. unless it's a nice brisk evening, uh, that could be tricky. I would need a mask uh, to do it that would allow for easy easily eating and drinking. Because if, if I'm yeah. going to you know, take on this costume and go, I'm going to go full method. So I need to account for that voracious appetite. Uh, there's going to be a lot to eat, a lot to drink. So it's kind of a practical level there. Uh, I do have to point out, you know. And maybe this is a bit of a, of a tangent, but I was I was kind of dipping back into our, our holiday special uh, with Saturn and Saturnalia. Yeah. I feel like our our one of our our joint complaints was that we kind of realized the Puritans, um, you know, took Saturnalia, which had a lot of quirk and a lot of interesting stuff, and just sanitized yeah. it, made it uninteresting, took out all the fun parts, and left us with uh, with a much lamer end result. And I feel um, there could be a similar thread here <clears throat> with 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 Halloween. I feel like. 
if you're going to wear the werewolf costume, you know, chances are you're going to do a little roar, you know, you flash your fangs, go about your business. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Um, but to all of our younger listeners who are considering a werewolf costume, I, I would remind you um, that trick or treat is not just a traditional slogan. It is an explicit threat. <laughs> so, I mean, a lot of kids, I think, forget this, but, I, you know, it, it is. If you do not provide a treat, it is my cultural duty to play a trick on you. Right. Now, if you are dressed as a werewolf, that gives you license to do any manner of misdeeds <laughs> against the home of somebody who might, you know, deprive you of that treat. So. Based on what we've learned in this episode, that can be anything from, you know, the swipe of the claw to the face to eating their children, depending <laughs> on how you interpret the costume. So so I guess that's, you know, I, I would be a little constrained by the costume, but for the youth who would really be taking this seriously and taking on this character, I say, go for it. It's time to give Halloween some teeth, raise the stakes, <laughs> get out there, make trick or treat mean something again. So, so, I, so I do want to point out that Matt's not a lawyer. So. <laughs> <laughs> very much not <laughs> so his advice on this comes to your license uh you may want to consult an actual lawyer before well you... i i think uh i i think the advice of a uh of a novelty podcast co-host is <laughs> right up there with a werewolf defense in a court of law we're not going to carry a lot of weight <laughs> all right all right so all right um ah, interesting uh so you know i, I would say uh, first on, on the downside of being a mummy, uh, you yeah, like you can't really get around this. Is that uh, for, first you you have to be dead. Truth, <laughs> you, yeah, that's you true. Have to yeah. have died. Uh, you know uh, that comes first. Now, to be fair, uh, odds are pretty high that eventually uh, that is going to happen to us. Uh, yes, very. If if the past is is any indication, so you know, I, I, I guess that's some some sort of mitigation. Um, then you know, for most of the mummies. Uh, that we've learned about, uh, they're in a state for thousands of years uh, in that state of death. And in that case of Imhotep uh, in the mummy, he's conscious that whole time Ooh. of being buried alive. Yeah, that's not good. For 3,000 years. So him getting up and then reintegrating into uh, Egyptian society for, for 10 years is pretty good. I mean, that, that's that really is good. Yeah, that, that that is that is a win uh, for um, for him. But uh, you know, others, you know, wake up occasionally and they have a party under the pyramids, <laughs> uh, as we saw with uh, with one of those um, w with the the Houdini mummies. Sure. Uh, then you know, then when you wake, you know, if you have enough uh, juice to fully restore your body, uh, you can unwrap. Um, and just kind of go about your business. Uh, otherwise, you'll you'll still need to keep that full money garb. Yeah. Um, you know, still keep that wrapped up. Um, you know, and then most of what what you're likely to to you know do is, is to either seek your lost love or or revenge on some bubbling uh, Egypto Egyptologist. <laughs> um, you know, but honestly, the success rate, especially with the long lost love, is not great. In fact, I, I there are no cases no. that I found where, where they, they were successful. Right. Uh, so, so you know, that's not great. Uh, you know, and then again, you know, as we said, normally we'd be asking who to worship, but uh, in this in this case, uh, who'd you rather dress up for for Halloween? I think both of these. Uh, Monsters are, are pretty recognizable, uh, you know, uh, especially, you know, if you're going to go all out, 
uh, you know, in the most elaborate version, version, you know, it, it could be a tad uncomfortable again being wrapped uh, from head to toe. Uh, you got to make sure you have your own opening of the mouth thing so you you, you can breathe right. uh, while you're doing that. Um, you know, the the Egypt, the mummy, you know, could have some nice Egyptian accessories that come with it. You know, you, you can use the Lincoln Park beard if you want, a little <laughs> eyeliner, nice. uh, if you want to take that in an emo direction. <laughs> Uh, you know, and, and then on the other side, now you you were advocating for them going full out. Uh, if you want a, a lower investment DIY route, and maybe you know, uh, only use half of your rear end, uh, you know, you could just strategically wrap some gauze around yourself, and, and it'd probably be pretty recognizable and and get away with it. Yeah, and pretty breathable too, in a, in a hot room or if you're uh, dealing with it with a yeah with a crowded party. Very good. Yeah. Well. I don't know. I, you know, the, the, the notion of somebody of a mummy being both dead and also potentially conscious during uh, thousands of years of captivity compared to that, the life of a werewolf seems like a (laughs) a holiday. Yeah. And I'm also, I'm reminded in hearing your account that some of the werewolves in, uh, in later kind of literature are uh, the the rest of their lives are actually pretty good. I mean, they're kind of dapper, you know, they're, they're often high society and they have this sort of affliction. Sure. Uh, but for let's call it, you know, 28, 29 days of the month, I think it's pretty good <laughs> compared to lying in a sarcoph- sarcophagus for thousands of years. That's, that's not half bad. Um, right. I think all told, I'm going to have to, uh, I'll give my vote to the werewolves on this one. Yeah, no, I, 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 I agree with you on that. I think, I think uh, the idea of being buried alive for 3000 years is <laughs> a deal breaker. <laughs> it's a bit of a deal breaker. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's no wonder that they're, they, they get up and they're upset. Yeah, and, it, and if there was even one or two cases of lost love actually being successful uh, in that scenario, that's one thing. But if it's if they're bat no for everything, then <laughs> no yeah. thanks. It's not going well. No. So all right, uh, all right. So that moves us on to our third category, which is Good God, uh, where we decide, you know, who is well, not God, but a good monster, I guess. Uh, <laughs> good monster. Uh, in this case, and I think they both have uh, kind of an interesting uh, case to make. Uh, so, uh, Matt, why don't, why don't you take the, the lead on this one? Yeah, you know, it, it, similar to the spread of different varieties in in the early versions, the middle age versions. You know, a lot of a lot of baby cannibalism, not a great look. <laughs> Uh, sure, they 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 got their curse and did their time, but still not uh, not great for your character. Uh, but there are those who did, you know, finish their sentences. They did their nine or 10 years. Then they were reintegrated into society yeah. and in some cases won Olympic medals. Um, so there is a certain redemption to some of even those older stories. Um, I think characters, as we alluded to a little earlier, it's a tricky question because you just, you can't entirely blame the werewolf here. There's some sort of curse. There's some sort of bite or scratch that's happened. And you can't really help the bouts of violence, the insatiable appetites. Uh, so, where there's a lot of bad behavior and certainly no shortage of of, of violence and kind of recklessness, yep. not entirely their fault. So they get at least a at least a moral gray area, if not a full pass. They're the lucky ones who manage to find Jesus and get healed. That's the right. rest of them. Yeah. Uh, not every werewolf is so lucky. So ultimately, a solid mixed bag on character for the werewolves. Yeah, uh, definitely, definitely a mixed bag leaning towards not great with with the mummies as well. Uh, you know, uh, some of the mummies uh, start off kind of as uh, evilish uh, sorceresses or, or, or magicians. 
yeah. uh, and, and they're, they're causing havoc. Uh, but, you know, when they come back, it, interestingly, I think in some ways the love mummies are, are actually kind of the worst of the bunch hmm. uh, because they tend to look and find an innocent uh, victim who just kind of resembles yeah. uh, the, people they, the person they had a crush on 3,000 years ago. Yeah, there's a, a tough moral case to be made there. Yeah. Yes, uh, not, you know, so there, there's really no case that that is in any way uh, justified. And they usually they know what they're doing. They, right. They, they're... You know, they're satisfying their own sort of uh, lust or their own passion. Yes. Right? So it's a crime of passion, but it is also premeditated. premeditated. Yes. yes. Uh, in the case of the revenge mummies, you know, you do feel kind of a lot of times that these Egyptologists had it coming. I think so. One <laughs> after that, another. Yeah. That, 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 they started it. They, they started, they're, they're digging up the bodies, they're unwrapping parties. In, in in London, uh, in in the case of uh, the the one uh, the one in the the Bram Stoker, he's they're actively trying to raise the mummy out of its state of death. They just Not don't good. do that. No, it, I, I, mean, I put it, the curse up on the wall for a reason. <laughs> it was right there in black and white. <laughs> right. Sure, it was the hieroglyphics, but you should have yeah. known. <laughs> you had the Rosetta Stone. There's That's really right. there's no excuse. So so a bit of a mixed bag on there, and I, and I think it, again it depends on on, on motivation and and, yes. and what what is is uh, sparking that 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 killing spree. Uh, so you know, uh, it's a tough one. It's yeah, tough one. I I think I give because of the intentionality of a lot of the mummies' misdeeds. Yeah. I think I give the Wolfman the edge. I, I think in some ways those early sort of more cannibalistic stories are more the outliers. Uh, the wolf werewolves as we know them, I feel like are 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 also wronged and are doing the best they can what they have, and they can't wait to be done being werewolves. Like the right. the mummies seem to be relishing their opportunity to get something or do something. Whereas those werewolves, man, they are just counting the hours until that full moon is gone because this is enough. Right, right. So, I, yeah, I, I I I think that the. Uh, yeah, the intentionality uh it goes goes to uh the premeditation yes uh, make, makes the, the mummy a bit of a, a worse case yes uh so so i'm gonna uh, agree with you so now we have iconography uh and so this is you know who has the larger cultural impact with us today and i think this is gonna be a really interesting uh category so you know i i wanted to stick with some of the favorites uh, so I, I went to the first start off with baby names. Uh, so baby names stat, stats page. And uh, I found there are nine people in the United States with the first name Mummy. What? <laughs> so, <laughs> that is, that is uh, nine more than I was expecting. Yeah. Nine. Uh, in, I, in, in one name particular year. This was just how just many total. there are. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Total. So they're out there, not many of them. Uh, so uh, you know, there, there there are I counted over forty different mummy movies, uh, yeah. in, in uh, one database, and you know, in film, of course, we have the you know, the king of all of them is the Brendan Fraser, right. uh, Rachel Weisz uh, film franchise, and that's hopped out actually with the second one, uh, the Mummy Returns. Uh, with a box office gross of two hundred two million dollars, wow! 
in the U.S. So that was that was a pretty successful movie, and that of course also has spawned uh, at Universal. They have a mummy uh, ride at both the Universal in L.A. and in uh, Florida, I believe. Um, yeah. And I believe it even spun off the uh, the Dwayne the Rock Johnson uh, Scorpion King movie, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, that that is, so it that was is a true. Multi-film, multi-character franchise. Right, and, and and there's a there was a Tom Cruise mummy movie in 2017 which i did not remember at all and i was hoping you would know about this i was i was going to ask you about it because it comes up every now and then as kind of a blip in the uh, otherwise pristine box office record but uh i can't even know any of that coming out no i did, did i only found out that in my research i, was like, I had no idea that 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 it even happened so uh blink of mine that was gone um now from that uh from the brendan fraser uh franchise though uh, we did get a spinoff of a mummy holster, so uh, <laughs> yes. where, where you too can look like an early two thousand era Brendan Fra- <laughs> Brendan Fraser adventurer. So, nice. uh, in the style of his character at the time. So, yeah, there were a lot of uh, literature that I talked about. So I don't want to gonna go back into that too much, but one that maybe didn't quite make uh, its way to the canon. Uh, there was. A YA fiction uh, novel uh, called "Unwrap My Heart," <laughs> and I will give you the, the synopsis from that. Uh, Sophia is just a normal high school girl who about getting her homework done and looking cool in the lunchroom when he shows up, a devastatingly handsome new kid, mysteriously covered in decaying bandages, and staring at her from the empty holes where his eyes should be. Oh, she wow. thinks. He's just a hipster, but is there more to this handsome stranger than meets the eye? Yes, he's a mummy. <laughs> what tipped it off? The decaying gauze? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah, where, yeah, where his eyes should should have been. Uh, so, I'm pretty sure that that, that one is is all meant <laughs> as as a bit of a goof. Uh, I, I think so. Yeah. yeah. So, um, a couple of the mummy things. Uh, the mummy eye chalice is a colorful kind of coral. Okay. Uh, the mummy spider is a criminal entity linked to the development of malware uh, against your computers. Okay. So mummy spider. Uh, and then, uh, you know, on lunch, uh, on 1031 at my, my daughter's uh, school, they are going to have uh, this next week, they're going to have beef frank mummy dogs will be served. <laughs> at 1031 a.m.? No, uh, on, uh, oh, on, on October, October 31st. 31st. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Leave it to me to be mostly disturbed by the timing of the meal. It <laughs> yes. seems very early. Very early. All right, I'll go. <laughs> I need it. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> so clearly the cultural impact is uh, is, is left far and wide with this legacy. Yeah, yeah. so uh, I got a couple, couple more. Uh, Nike has a pair of sneakers known as the mummies, which have appearance of being wrapped. Hmm. Uh, they're on sale. Uh, so Pop Sugar uh, listed uh, a website called Pop Sugar listed the mummy as its twelfth most popular classic Halloween costume. Um, you know, and then I also found many exterior Halloween mummy uh, decorations. Uh, 
and they range all the way from hanging upside down mummy corpse to inflatable mummies with LED oh. lights. Okay, high tech. Yeah, so uh, so those are a few things that uh, I found that I thought were were notable. Uh, so what do you have on uh, werewolves? Yeah, the legend lives on. So I will dip a little bit uh, deeper in the literature in the film here. So sure. I mean, you mentioned Bram Stoker earlier. Uh, we do early on in 20th century get the uh, werewolf as a kind of a side character in Bram Stoker's Dracula uh, and a short story called Dracula's Guest, which mm-hmm. I mentioned the werewolf was like his roommate. Slay <laughs> 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 stand in the pool house. Yeah. Uh, but the most that most famous incarnation of Dracula claims that werewolves actually originated from his own racial bloodline. So Dracula's case in Bram Stoker was that, yeah, I'm, I'm actually related to these guys. Okay. And that version of the Dracula could also shapeshift into a wolf at night, um, uh. but cannot do so during the day, except, interestingly, at noon. So <laughs> if he <laughs> wants to dabble in a little lycanthropy, he can do that, but only uh, only during the lunch Lunchtime, hour. Lunchtime, yeah. Yeah. Um, the, in terms of the cinematic legacy, you know, of course, that's where a lot of of, of the the mark is left. Werewolf in London, nineteen thirty-five. That's sort of the, where the initial appearance. Uh, yeah. That's not the full kind of you know anthropomorphized mummy or uh, uh, werewolf rather that you expect, yeah. because the star Henry Hall just didn't feel like sitting in the makeup chair for that <laughs> one. Uh, but he had Jack Pierce, who was like the go-to guy for monster makeup, who would do you know a lot of these other ones, but just didn't feel like it. So he's very lightly made up, and that one didn't make as much of an impact. Uh, but it's not until you get to 1941, then the also aforementioned Lon Chaney in the movie The Wolfman. You get the elaborate makeup. He's very hairy. The character really took off with that. Um, and that's where it kind of entered the American cinematic consciousness. You get a little more comic treatment in uh, one that I remember a little bit, American Werewolf in London, uh, yeah. 1981, John Landis, which, of course, would influence Michael Jackson's uh, thriller video in nearly 14 minutes, just two years later, 1983, uh, which depicts an otherwise blameless man who, <laughs> uh, is infected by the curse of the wolf. So uh, he was so impressed. Michael Jackson was by American Werewolf in London, then he hired John Landis to make that video. Okay. Um, there's Jack Nicholson and Wolf, 1984. I didn't really see that one. I, mm. I, I alluded to it earlier. My personal favorite, of course, Teen Wolf, whose full title yeah. is Teen Wolf the Movie, uh, just in <laughs> case you're not clear. Uh, 1985, of course, Michael J. Fox, the great uh, diminutive Canadian, uh, becomes a werewolf <laughs> and somehow a high school uh, basketball star. And no need to rehash the plot of that one, but <laughs> my favorite bit about this movie, this is true. Decades later, uh, none other than LeBron James um, complained that the basketball action in the film was not <laughs> realistic. <laughs> so to LeBron, that was the unrealistic part of the film. It wasn't, uh, you know, that the character becomes a werewolf. But no, it's after the bully on the other team fouls out of the game. The refs allow him to stand at the baseline and watch eye to eye our hero shoot his free throws. And that was too much for LeBron. James. He had a real problem with that. So. Thank goodness we have the man who would star in the remake of Space Jam playing against Bugs Bunny uh, to remind us of what realistic cinematic basketball is <laughs> is supposed to be. Yeah, uh, there was a uh, more recently Marvel had a had a kind of a short movie called Werewolf by Night, kind of a black and white special, pretty good, about a year or yeah. two ago. Uh, to my knowledge, the only one of all these films where which ends with the werewolf uh, and his friend deciding to go out and grab sushi. I don't recall that being <laughs> the other ones. Yeah. Um, got some good music in there there's a paul simon track that's pretty good werewolves of london i think of course oh, yeah, yeah. that's a classic and we haven't you know we've, we've been sticking to the notion of werewolves rather than the particular variety known as the wolf man right 
Um, but I do have to give a nod to the great uh, 1970s DJ Wolfman Jack. Oh, yeah. Where a lot of great rock and roll acts to the fore. Uh, a darker piece of the legacy, uh, Verwolf, which is the German pronunciation, uh, was the code name for one of Hitler's headquarters, which is located uh... in now Ukraine. And as World War II was winding down, there was an Operation Verwolf in which the Germans would create this commando force that would operate behind enemy lines as the allies. So once the allies won the war and were coming into Germany, this was going to be their plan to have commandos fighting back from the uh, inside. Thankfully it never came to that. So that okay. was, that's Good. one werewolf we can definitely do without. Right. Um, you got some of the classics, you know, you got a role-playing game for the werewolves. You got some dungeons and dragons, a helicopter, a Marine squadron. And yes, in your honor, no shortage of wolf-themed holsters available on the market. Curious <laughs> guys. Uh, so I'd say a pretty pretty strong legacy, all told. Yeah. I think uh, most of it kind of concentrated into the films of uh, the the last last few decades, but uh, certainly lives on. Uh, yeah. No. Uh, uh, yeah. I think I think uh, I think this one's pretty close, but I, I think. The werewolf just has a bigger, and I can't point to one particular thing, but I, yeah. I do think it has a just a bigger breadth or bigger place in sort of the psyche uh, of of America. It has that longer lore, and, and I think it kind of spread around the world uh, more. And so. I feel like we we culturally kind of have one werewolf at a time, right? We don't. Yes, there are multiple werewolves, but we sort of have in our in our movies, and you know, there, there's that one character who inhabits it at a time. Whereas the mummies. Are very much scattered in terms of who's who yeah. over the course of years. Yeah, so I agree with you. I will give I will give the werewolf my vote in this one as well. Uh, the um, werewolves in the lead, three to one. But yes. as always, uh, we will go to our final category, which is matinee idol, and who would make the better uh, f- film or uh, limited series? So. This is an interesting one because you know there are a lot more uh, mummy films than there were, say, uh, Aristeus or Apollo films right. or uh, yes. Bastet films. So yes. there we're really having to use our own imaginations. Uh, here, I, what I did is I tried to you know synthesize and expand upon uh, what is already kind of kind of a. A uh, mature genre of of the mummy movie. So, yes. uh, you know, to make the ultimate mummy movie, I think really it has to be uh, something we haven't seen that much in any of them. Is from the perspective of the deceased embalmed person sure. uh, who who's experiencing reanimation. <laughs> uh, so yes. Uh, so we're going to open this uh, with our mummy. Uh, G- uh, being just released from her sarcophagus, uh, you know, wrapped in the dark, uh, you can hear the sounds of a group of uh, bumbling. And, and this one, they're American, uh, they're British Americanologists because this is in the future, oh. and they are breaking into her tomb room. And then our long-legged mummy lady springs into action as soon as the the coffin lid rises. Uh, and to the tune of "Look What You Made It Made Me Do," a reanimated antihero uh, makes quick work of those Americanologists, killing all of them except for one younger supporting member of the team, who just happens to look a lot like Joel Alwyn, who was spared uh, 
by her and she puts him into a lavender haze hypnosis <laughs> to serve the mummy because yes it's a thousand years in the future and the americanologists from the new british empire have come along to dig up the tomb of america's queen of pop music taylor swift my goodness it was only a matter of time <laughs> so uh she, she you know she raises her her uh ten- tongueless hench mummy uh <laughs> harry styles along with her who somehow has the ability to sing but not speak mm. uh and together the three of them set off to settle scores uh with reincarnations of her feuds uh like uh oh, yeah. katie perry and uh music manager scooter braun sure uh and then after uh restoring herself to her, her full full glory while singing uh style uh, she sets off on her two real missions which is to find the reincarnation of her true love travis kelsey <laughs> rip from the headlines <laughs> bring him back and then to restore the american republic from the clutches of emperor donald kanye west trump the ninth <laughs> So this, uh, this really is a horror picture. <laughs> so, it's a horror picture, but with the, the triumphant return, uh, she is successful. Uh, culminating the movie. Well, well done. That is certainly adding some original <laughs> modern day flair to the mummy story. Well, now had a similar challenge uh, for for werewolves. You know, so many variations, so many, so such a deep well to draw from. Seeing clearly so many cinematic treatments that have come before. I took a slightly different route. I, I kind of picked an obscure uh, story from the 12th century. Okay. Atypical uh, werewolf story, but I think it could make a nice a nice film. So it's a poem written by Melie de France. Uh, it is known as Bisclare. And I'm going to go ahead and, and, and that's the name of the, of the protagonist is uh, Bisclare. I'm going to refer to him as the Baron uh, in the rest okay. of the pitch. For the, <laughs> spare the audience the rest of my French pronunciations. But it's a sort of a sung poem from the 12th century. And we begin with him. He's a nobleman in the Brittany region of France. He's a baron, big landowner, well-established, beloved by his king, and really living his best life. There's only one wrinkle. Every week, for three full days, he vanishes. No one knows where he goes. And we're not talking full moon. We're talking every week, three yeah. days. So even his wife doesn't know. The members of his household and, the, and, his, and his subjects don't know. And his wife has got some questions because three days every week, you know, <laughs> that's, you're going to yeah. get curious. And his wife is frankly feeling a bit neglected uh, from this. So she finally begs uh, the Baron to reveal his secret. Like, do you have uh, another family out of town? Do you right, have some right. kind of addiction? And he says, no. In fact, he fesses up. He is, in fact, a werewolf. Now, it's never revealed in the poem why that happened. That remains a mystery. But it's the Baron's story. He's sticking to it. So he gives his wife one more important and yet puzzling piece of information he says here's the thing when i do my whole werewolf time for three days a week i have to take off my clothes first and hide them in a safe place and if i can't find them at the end i'd be stuck as a werewolf forever <laughs> now the wife understandably shocked by the news also very upset at the baron from uh, for keeping it from her and so she says all right this is enough i i got to escape this marriage it just so happens there's a strapping knight who's had this thing for her in town for quite a while this knight is very kind to her. He's very brave. He does not mysteriously vanish for the equivalent <laughs> of four long weekends a month. And because the Baron just gave her this highly unnecessary detail, 
she gets an idea. So as you can expect, the next time uh, the Baron goes on his little wolf about, she dispatches the knight, uh, her would-be lover, to, uh, you guessed it, go and steal the clothing, which he does. The Baron is out and never comes back. And of course, the people put on a search party. They finally give him up, leave him for dead. And as we know, he is, of course, trapped as a wolf uh, for, for the duration. But the Baron's wife sees the coast is clear, marries the knight while the husband's away and and thinks she's got it happily ever after. Now, so then we cut to, of course, the Baron over a year-long montage where he is trapped in the forest, unable to return home, permanently in this wolf state, and wandering the lands that he once ruled over, very upset, very frustrated. But a year later, his old friend the king is out on a hunting trip, and wouldn't you know it, his old hunting dogs locate the Baron in wolf form, and they find him and they corner him. But the Baron has to think fast. So he runs to the king, and he begs for mercy the only way he can, because he can't talk. He's still in full wolf form. So he just runs to the king, um, takes his stirrup, kisses his legs, and just becomes the best the best wolf he can be, the <laughs> nicest possible wolf. So uh, everyone's really impressed that he's being a really good boy for being the wolf that they found in the forest. And they're all taken by the nobility of this creature, including the king. So the king says, come back to my castle, you noble, gentle creature. Come live with me and we shall be companions. So that's what happens. He goes back to the castle and the Baron is, is now the, the wolf pet of the king himself. Now, a bit later at the castle, as you can expect, there's a celebration for various reasons. And who should be attendants? But the strapping knight that uh, was able to conspire with the Baron's wife and marry her. Uh, so he's at that party. Now, the Baron, in wolf form, spots the knight, sees him, and in a fit of understandable rage, rage attacks him. Now, this is the noble, kind pet wolf, but suddenly just goes into this fit of rage. Now, the king yeah. calls him back, but wonders, my noble wolf here has never been so violent before. I wonder if this knight must have somehow done something wrong in the past, but then kind of moves on. Yeah. So after the party, the king is sort of making the rounds throughout the kingdom, happens to visit the Baron's old neighborhood, his old lands. And of course, the Baron's former wife hears about this, hears about the visit, comes to see the king bearing gifts. But of course, the king, when he's walking around town, brings with him his wolf pet, the Baron. And of course, once the Baron lays eyes on his former wife for the first time since her deception, his inner werewolf really kicks in. No one can restrain him. He gets loose, attacks his ex-wife, and in the process, tears off her nose. Yeah. She lives to tell the tale. Now, after the attack, there's a local wise man. So picture kind of a of a 12th century detective, sort of a Middle Ages kind of <laughs> Columbo figure, who finally puts it all together. He's like, wait a second. The wolf had never attacked anybody. Now suddenly he's attacked the knight and then the knight's wife. Something's going on here. <laughs> King agrees. So he has the wife locked up and interrogated. There's a bit of torture because it is still the 12th century. And she confesses everything, tells the whole werewolf stories. Everybody now knows that the wolf's, the, the king's dear pet is in fact a permanently wolfified baron. Uh, she even, under duress, gives up the outfit that she once stole from her husband ah. to get him into this mess. So the king has his men put the clothing in front of the wolf baron, and he just kind of puts his head down and shakes his, no, can't do it. So the wise man, the Columbo, kind of says, hey, <laughs> tell you what, bring the wolf and the clothing into the bedchamber. Give him a little privacy. This is what we'll recall. The change back for wolf to man is very traumatic. You know, it's a, it's a tough transition. Give the man a little, little room. So he goes in there, does it. Comes back out, he's the Baron again in human form. Now, the king is thrilled to see his old friend, embraces him, gives him back all of his lands, and in punishment, of course, exiles both the former wife and her knight husband, never to be seen again. So the Baron's life is restored uh, in the end of the film, 
the wife and the husband did not live as happily ever for generations afterward because for generations, all of their female progeny are born without noses. So <laughs> that's a film. Clearly it has it all. <laughs> I don't care about that. <laughs> you've got, you've got a powerful man who's brought down. You've got obviously a decent dose of lycanthropy. You've got an adulterous plot, violent attacks, and even a little good kind of detective work from 12th century Colombo. <laughs> Certainly an unexpected twist on the familiar werewolf tale um, yeah. and the one I think to generate enough empathy appropriately for our protagonist. So, uh, you know, and his only real crime was not properly securing his clothing while undertaking a typical <laughs> three-day naked getaway. So go and see the film Baron It All or <laughs> subtitle The Nose Always Knows. Uh, see it this Halloween in a joint production of the Horror Channel and National Geographic. And I had to say, in terms of casting, clearly yours is is really uh, is 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 intuitively cast. Yeah. I was looking for somebody who's a naturally hairy guy who's not afraid to, you know, disrobe, have a good hairy chest, expressive eyes, have his ups and downs, remain oddly popular in Europe no matter what he does. <laughs> so David Hasselhoff is oh, my yeah, star sure. of, of Baron It All. And there you, you have it. All right. Um, yeah, interesting. So. Uh, very different directions on those. Yes, uh, this is what we love about the program. Yeah, we always, so yeah, we really we span two thousand years of history. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> You're going a thousand yes. years back. I'm going a thousand years forward. The power of uh, cinema. Yeah. Uh, you know, I I I'm going to give it to Taylor. I feel like uh, captures the zeitgeist at the moment. Uh, I think I will join you in that. I think that is uh, that, that would certainly pack theaters. In much the same way that she's doing this very weekend. <laughs> yes, this very weekend. So you did, you did good. Uh, same right. vote for me. All right. So, but three to two, uh, werewolves take it. Uh, so werewolves are victorious. Well, since it's an exhibition match, they don't formally join the pantheon, so they no. are still sort of in the, uh, you know, maybe on the bench, but to get a closer seat to the action, uh, as do. Uh, and who won the first one? Santa, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so. so Santa and the werewolves are now <laughs> right there on the bench. Well, yeah. uh, excellent. Well, that's where we'll send the golden pumpkin uh, yep. straight to the the uh, the werewolf headquarters. Uh, before we drop, uh, quick quick announcement, Andrew. As we have talked about, yep. I am. Uh, this will be my final episode uh, of this program. Yeah, I am sadly. Thank you. Very, very bittersweet. I have some exciting things ahead that will come to come uh, come to shape pretty quickly. Uh, but I will I will officially turn uh, turn the full reins over to you for uh, for the future of the program. So I, I suspect our audience will hear from you at some point about uh, what form that may take. Right. That's right. Yeah. So I'm, I'm working on that now, working out the, the details or maybe some changes. Uh, well, obviously there'll be some big changes with with Matt not being there. But, uh, you know, I think uh, soldiering on to try and save the world. Uh, yes, it should be. Which is one, not not getting any better. So <laughs> one pantheon on time. Yeah, so we're we're, we're definitely taking uh, one step forward, two steps back. But yes. keep trying. Uh, yes. So this has been a great show, and uh, you know enjoyed uh, the whole series, the twenty four, uh, and uh, you know. So we'll we'll be in touch, of course. Uh, but yes, uh, we've we've made it this long for thirty plus years. I can't <laughs> yeah. imagine that will change. Yeah. Well, thank you, and uh, it's been it's been a great experience and quite enjoyable and enriching. And for all of the audience who is uh, stuck with us, thank you for enjoying the program as well and for all of your kind words over uh, the last couple of years. Really appreciate it all. Uh, we'll leave it there. Well, thanks to Andy Snow, as always, for the yep. theme music. Thank you for uh, liking and subscribing. And between now and uh, whatever stirs up next, please please tell your friends and catch up on these 
36 hours of high quality programming. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, folks. Bye, everybody.